Hello and welcome back to Panem, a podcast that surreptitiously runs a finger along the dusty drawer of Paris's past. Last time, we looked at dubious miracles. This time, forbidden miracles. That's right, in this podcast we're going to be talking about more miracles, and not the kind of miracle like getting a seat on Line 13 during rush hour, but some of the more unusual miracles. After all, in Paris's long history, there have been many. For example, while I was researching this one, I stumbled across the miracle of Saint-Geneviève. She is the young girl who saved Paris from Attila the Hun in the 5th century. Story has it that Attila was on his way, storming west towards Paris, ready to massacre the Parisians apparently having already massacred 11,000 virgins at Cologne. The Parisians were about ready to flee and Geneviève said, get down on your knees and pray, which they did. And Attila, miraculously, avoided Paris altogether and went and slaughtered the Orleans instead. Some people thought maybe Attila was put off because the Parisians had all stayed to defend Paris. Others said perhaps there was just not 11,000 virgins to be massacred in Paris. So who knows? Well, that was one of the miracles that happened here in Paris. Poor old Geneviève, she did become the patron saint of Paris and she was buried up at the Mont um, Saint-Geneviève, um, just by the Pantheon, until sadly the revolutionaries took out her remains and scattered them around Paris. And that might be why, when later she was called on to defend Paris against the Huns again in the Second World War, she snubbed them and, you know, they invaded. So, just goes to show, treat your people with a bit more respect. So it's not this miracle that interests today, nor is it the miracle of Saint-Catherine Labouret. Now, I didn't even know who she was until I started doing this podcast, but she is actually a great draw for Catholics coming to Paris. She is um, another young woman, a devout Catholic, uh, and like other young women, like Joan of Arc and uh, Saint-Geneviève, she saw heavenly visions, most famously the Virgin Mary, and she went on to create the miraculous medals. Anyway, she dedicated her life to the church and caring for others, and she died in 1876, but her body was exhumed 57 years later, and miraculously, she was perfectly preserved. Now, this comes into this Catholic belief of the notion of incorruptible body. And it's a belief that corpses of saints don't decompose, and it's a sign that God has intervened because of the person's holiness. Anyway, St. Catherine's incorrupted body can still be seen today in rude back, and she's displayed in a glass coffin. And I must admit, she does look remarkably well-preserved for someone who died over 140 years ago. But it's none of these miraculous people or events which interest us today, but rather the little and now much overlooked church and one-time cemetery of Saint-Médard in the 5th arrondissement, where in the 18th century the miracles became so contentious that the king himself had to intervene. So let's hop onto the metro and head over to Rue Mouffetard in the 5th arrondissement and find out what this is all about. Rue Mouffetard is a charming market street, even though Mouffetard does mean putrid stench, but that is a story for another podcast. But that's not what we're interested in today. At the end of the street is the lovely church St. Médard. It's believed that there was a church here since the 7th century, although it was destroyed by Vikings and various people and built up over the 15th, 16th, 17th and even 18th century. It's nice if you can tear yourself away from the cheese shops and all the other things on the Rue Mouffetard for a little visit and see some of its old stained glass windows which date back to the 16th century, or even the more modern ones. Now, religious buildings did not get off lightly following the revolution of 1789, but luckily saint Madar managed to survive as it was turned into a temple of work. 
which I'm not exactly sure what that is or what they would have been doing in there, but nonetheless, it is still here today. Samadad himself, which this story is not about, it just happens in the church called Samada, but I thought you might be interested to know about the actual saint. Samadad is a bishop who lived in the 5th and 6th century. There's a famous saying which relates to his feast day, and it goes... Quand il pleut à la Sainte Médard, il pleut quarante jours plus tard. Should Saint Médard's day be wet, it will rain for forty yet. Now legend has it that the young Médardus was once protected from the rain by the wings of an eagle. And it's for this reason he's often depicted with an eagle hovering above him, a sort of unusual umbrella. Anyway, his saint's day is on the 8th of June, and he's a patron saint of winemakers, brewers, farmers, as well as prisoners and the mentally ill. So for this reason, farmers and winemakers, and maybe prisoners and the mentally ill, would carefully monitor the weather on the 8th of June for fear it was going to rain for 40 days. This would not come true, however, if it was sunny on the 11th of June, because the 11th of June is the feast of St. Barnabas. The full saying goes, Should St. Medard's day be wet, it will rain for 40 yet, at least until St. Barnabas, the summer sun, won't favour us. Quite a nice little rhyme, isn't it? But it's not the miracle of the weather that interests us today, or the church, uh, or Sen Medar, or any of the other people I've spoken about so far. It is rather the graveyard, which, by the way, no longer exists. It's been turned into a little playground. Today, children sort of hop around and play on the swings and slides, and old people feed the pigeons and such like, little knowing that a few hundred years ago, all sorts of unusual miracles were happening, which led way to what they called the convulsive. The convulsioners? They were having convulsions. It's a difficult word to say. Let's go back and find out what it's all about. It all started on the 1st of May 1727, following the funeral of the deacon François de Paris, which took place here at Saint-Médard, and he was buried in the cemetery. He died at the young age of 37, but this is hardly surprising when you consider how he lived. Now, he was a devout Jansenist, and he chose to live an ascetic life, which means one of extreme austerity and self-mortification. So, just to give you an idea of the type of self-mortification, he would sleep on a hard bed. He covered himself with a sheet which was apparently bristling with irons. He woke up at two every morning and went to bed at ten every evening. As if this was not enough, he wore a hair shirt, a spiked metal belt and a chain around his right arm. He beat himself with an iron-tipped lash until the blood ran down his back. He did not allow himself to have a fire to warm himself up in the winter. And he only ate one meal a day, which was just a humble fare of bread, rice, cabbage, or vegetable soup with no seasoning. Um, he had bread and water on fast days and only meat at Christmas, Easter and Pentecost. He apparently would make his way round the streets of the neighbourhood, which earlier I mentioned Muftar did mean putrid stench. It was a pretty dirty, poor, impoverished neighbourhood at this time, so it was a really filthy place, but he'd make his way around the streets uh, doing his charitable work, but without wearing any shoes, so his feet would become filthy and cut up. Monsieur Francois, as he was called, was 
very popular with the poor people because he believed deeply that to help the poor you must live and work amongst them and this is exactly what he did a lot of the people in that neighborhood would have been working producing goods um, and working in the silk looms and he bought himself a loom and taught himself how to use it and so you know he was working side by side all the all the people in the neighborhood so at his death a huge number of people came to his funeral and it becomes a little complicated here to know if it was straight away that the miracles start happening from the moment of his funeral, during the funeral. You know, you can find accounts of people convulsing, like touching the coffin and convulsing and being able to walk and, and such like, or whether the miracle started immediately afterwards. But there are all sorts of miracles which were attributed to um, Monsieur François, to the deacon of Paris, following his his burial. And some of them were contested. So, for example, there's a, there's a quite famous one of Anne Lefranc, who apparently was a woman who had her arm paralysed and either touched the coffin or touched his grave and, her, you know, she gains the use of her arm. Some of them were contested, but many, 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 many miracles were ratified and they said, no, these were, you know, definite miracles. Now, this goes on for some time, around four years, the miracles keep happening. And these miracles were mainly of the type of healing. So people getting better, regaining use of their limbs, being able to see or just generally feeling better after making contact with the grave. And this of course like any miraculous event brings people so more and more people start hearing about this graveyard they, the miraculous events attributed to it coming to Muftar, coming to this neighborhood trying to you know either see miracles happening or have the miracles happen to themselves we can understand why people would be looking for miracles certainly at a time when people are living difficult poor lives with little medical assistance or help but it is a little bit harder to understand what happens next. The pilgrims go from looking for healing to rather having um, intense religious experiences. And it's mainly women who this happens to. And it's witnessed by a great number of people. So obviously lots of people have heard about this fantastic graveyard where all these miracles are happening. When it starts getting a little bit strange, people come to it. And one man in particular, Louis Basilicari de Montgeron, he comes along with his friend on the 7th of September 1731 very much with an idea to disprove this to say that it's all absolute nonsense and that these miracles are not happening and that you know it's it, he doesn't believe it but when he gets there he's profoundly struck by what he sees and himself experiences um, an overwhelming religious feeling and experience and apparently gets down onto his knees and prays for really hours on end and converts that day to Jainism and continues to visit the churchyard many times collecting enough evidence for this incredible book that he publishes and gives to King Louis XV who finds it disgusting um, both probably for what the content and for what it means and throws him into the Bastille prison. Part of the problem is the political and religious significance of Jainism itself and that these miracles are happening following the death of a Jainist deacon. The implication, of course, is that God supports and recognises the movement. So what is Jainism and why was this such a big deal or indeed a problem? It's, of course, quite complex. But in a nutshell, Jainism was a religious movement that developed mainly in France during the 17th and 18th centuries. At its core, it grapples with the religious problem of divine grace and human freedom. In other words, Jainism believes in predestination. 
This was problematic as it was against the teachings of the Catholic Church and looked to many a lot like Calvinism. Jansenists were also openly hostile to Jesuits and Jesuit teachings. However, the Jesuits had been very influential in France, especially during the reign of Louis XIV. As a result, Louis had persecuted the Jansenists and tried to stamp them out. Thus, supporting Jansenism was, in itself, a political gesture. Montgeron, however, is not deterred, and he will not be silenced. He goes on to publish three further books once he's released from Bastille. But I'm sure you're wondering, what was he seeing? What was happening? What was so disturbing? A word of warning, this is rather disturbing and a little violent, so it's perhaps not for the younger listeners. So, from previously a place of mainly healing, the graveyard becomes one of spectacle. Women, and again, they were mainly women, could be seen taking part in savage, sometimes sordid, and often quite sexual acts. They went to the graveyard and they were described as, as convulsing, and that's why they are collectively given the name the Convulsioners of Saint-Madar. This all took place in public, and it was a time, obviously, where women were not rarely seen in states of undress. And here they were partaking in acts which often saw them undressing, partially undressing, completely undressing, showing more flesh than they might have done otherwise. Um, women could be seen hitting their heads against stone walls, being beaten with wooden and metal bars, having their nipples twisted in metal clamps, being trampled on. Um, there's a famous case which happened on Toussaint of, the, of 1731, which is All Saints Day, where a woman was experiencing extreme convulsions and apparently even levitated. Another woman was roast over a fire for more than an hour. And what's curious about all of this is that they seem to feel no pain. And in fact, they plead for more punishment. Um, there is tell of women cleaning festering wounds by licking them or licking them clean or eating the diseased flesh. Um, women eating charcoal, earth and even feces. Um, and others who would merely mime religious scenes such as the crucifixion or more obscurely the rooster that crows three times to indicate the betrayal of Jesus. At a time of limited medical knowledge we can perhaps understand why people were interested in being healed. Maybe they were never sick in the first place, maybe it was really psychosomatic in nature, but these strange and troubling acts of essentially mass hysteria are harder to understand and reconcile. Maybe in a time of incredible repression, especially of women, this was some sort of release. I mean, or maybe, maybe it was something darker, something perhaps more complex. Anyway, as a result, a number of people were jailed for what happens in the graveyard. Some were considered dangerous to themselves, others were considered dangerous to others. You know, you can't just beat people with metal bars and expect to get away with it. And the people asking to be hit may have been mentally ill, but needless to say, both ended up in prison. There was no real support of the mentally unstable at that time. Other women were also imprisoned because they took on religious roles which were not open to women. So famously, there is Sister Melanie, who would carry out mass, and she was put into Bastille prison for having done this. Well, by now the king had had more than enough, so sent in the soldiers to shut down this cemetery in 1732 which they ultimately managed to do. Uh, someone found this very funny and wrote a little note on the door saying, God is forbidden by order of the king to perform any more miracles in the cemetery of Saint-Médard. 
But did this stop the convulsionaires? Well, it didn't, actually. Instead of this happening in the cemetery, it just moved into private residences and carried on happening. It was not really until the expulsion of the Jesuits in 1762, the deadly enemies of the Jansenists, that this all finally came to a close. And I thought I might share with you an account that comes from the writings of Frederick Melchior Baron von Grimm, what an excellent name, who wrote about these convulsions in his famous Correspondance Littéraire. The Correspondance Littéraire themselves are really quite interesting. They were a sort of cultural newsletter which was distributed between 1753 and 1790 and was written and produced by von Grimm and included contributions from Diderot, Madame d'Epinay and he wrote this newsletter on a bi-weekly basis up until about 1773 when he handed over responsibility. The newsletter was copied out by hand in order to avoid French censorship. It was confidential and Grimm had very small subscriber base across Europe, including apparently Catherine the Great of Russia. So von Grimm describes in one of his letters the crucifixion of two sisters. And again, skip this bit if you do not like gory details, but otherwise, here goes. The first scene was that of the crucifixion of the sister Rachel and the sister Felicity, two women from 30 to 40 years in age who were moved, as they pretended, to exhibit this lively image of the passion of our saviour in a mean lodging in Paris, August 1759. These two wretched creatures were actually nailed to two wooden crosses through their hands and their feet, and continued fastened to them for upwards of three hours. During this time they sometimes pretended to slumber, and at other times uttered a quantity of infantine nonsense and gibberish, asking for sweetmeats and threatening and fondling the spectators in lisping accents and all the babyish diminutives of the nursery. The nails were at length drawn out and a considerable quantity of blood flowed from all the wounds. After washing and bandaging, the patient sat down quietly to a little repast in the midst of the apartment. Although their votaries and ghostly advisers maintained that they experienced no pain, but on the contrary the most exquisite delight from these operations, the respectable reporters concur in testifying that it was easy to see throughout that they were in the utmost agony. After this tragedy, there was another kind of afterpiece by the inferior performers and pupils of this school of impostors. Various women were stretched on the floor and beat with bludgeons on the head and breast and trodden violently under the feet of their spiritual assistants to their infinite relief and gratification as the managers of the spectacle most solemnly asserted, but with more or less apparent dread and suffering. They had also the points of swords forcibly thrust against their sides and bosoms. The second exhibition consisted in the crucifixion of the sister Françoise and the sister Marie, and a great deal of beating and thrusting with swords on the bodies of some of their unfortunate apprentices. Françoise remained upwards of three hours on the cross, but sister Mary wanted faith or fortitude to edify the beholders to the same extent. She shuddered at the fastening of the nails, and in less than an hour fairly cried out that she could stand it no longer, and must be taken down. 
She was unfastened accordingly and carried out of the chamber in a state of insensibility to the no small discomfort. The spectacle was concluded with a still more unlucky performance. The sister Françoise had announced that God had commanded her on that day to burn the gown off her back and had assured her of much comfort from the operation. A fire was actually set to her skirts, but instead of appearing to experience any delight, the failing saint very speedily screamed out in terror and they were obliged to pour water upon her petticoats and carry her off, half roasted, half drowned and utterly ashamed of her exhibition. Those horrible and degrading practices had been going on in the heart of Paris for upwards of 20 years. A few profligate priests were supposed to be at the bottom of the contrivances, but all the agents, or victims rather, were women. This was taken from The Church in France by Charles Butler. Well, it's quite clear what Von Grimm thinks about all of this, and I would be interested to hear what you think about it. Um, today, if you want to go and visit Samedha, you can, of course. The cemetery is no longer there. But if you go round the corner onto the Rue d'Aubenton at number 39, you can still see traces of where the graveyard once stood. Well, that's about it for this episode. Um, for more information, pictures and all that kind of stuff, you can find it on my website, panampodcast.com. Um, and if you enjoy the show, be sure to subscri subscribe so you don't miss any more. And it would be amazing if you would rate or review me. I absolutely love making this podcast, doing all the research, heading out and discovering unusual things about Paris. Um, and it is fantastic when you get in contact with me and tell me that you've enjoyed the show or even let me know how I can improve it. Um, a few of you have done that too. If you are listening around the world, I have all the statistics and I'd like to let you know that Russia, you're at number one. I have most listeners in Russia. But if you are listening in in Kenya, Madagascar or Somalia, you are the only person. So hello, uh, whoever you are. It would be fantastic if you uh, tell a friend, so next time there might be two, and everyone, if you tell a friend so another person downloads the episode, um, that really, really helps. That's all for now, so take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.